Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time, News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show I talk to Chloe DeMont, the rightly lauded director of Netflix's blistering new high finance drama Fair Play. The creator of Pure Mule, Eugene O'Brien, writes a new Irish movie, Tarek, about a woman finding redemption, rowing a boat in the wilds of Kerry. Plus, we review The Exorcist Believer. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Farty, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're keeping well. I was at the zoo this Sunday just passed. I go there a lot. I've mentioned it before. Great place to go. Greatly enjoyed it. I mooched across to the Wellington Monument, a place I used to go a lot as a kid and a place I pass all the time now, but I rarely stop with. So I took the kids across to the Wellington Monument, this obelisks or whatever it's called, into the sky, all the steps up to it. The kids really enjoyed it. However, it occurs to me it might need to be renamed the Marijuana Monument. My children, who were enjoying running up and down the steps, said, what's that smell? Several times. I'm a kind of live and let live sort of fellow. I don't care what you do. But it seemed like everybody who was in the mood to partake decided to go to the Wellington Monument on Sunday. It was bizarre. So look, you know, just there's a time and a place. And I'm not sure the Wellington Monument on a Sunday afternoon is that time or place. There I said it. I can still smell it. In happier news, I was out for a run one lunchtime this week and I was running along and a guy ran past me, running quite fast, in kind of serious running gear, smiled and gave me a high five. Lovely, made my day. It was that like solidarity of strangers out running. It's the small things, my friend. The small things. I'll tell you what not is a small thing. The new David Beckham series on Netflix. It was just a pleasure watching him play and he loved it, he enjoyed it. I was more scared when he was there because I knew that if I'd put a foot wrong, he'd tell me. And he'd always tell me. Always. Do you ever think that you were too tough on David? Um, I used to think he was too strict. I used to say, he's only young, just leave him, let him be happy. But no, because, you know, if I told him how good he was, then he's got nothing to work at. Yes, now that is David Beckham and mostly his father there, who's kind of sounding like a classic soccer dad, you might suggest. This is a clip from the new Netflix series Beckham, which landed this week on Netflix. It's a four-parter. It has uh, contributions from everyone, most notably David Beckham and Posh Spice, uh, Victoria Beckham. We have Alex Ferguson, Roy Keane, Gary Neville, all sorts of people in there. I was talking earlier to Jessica Kelly about it. I think this is very entertaining. There are problems with it because it is, you know, sanitized because it's David Beckham and Posh Spice front and centre and they are controlling the narrative. But the alternative is you don't include them at all and you just get you know, people who loosely know them and disgruntled people from the past. So I think 
that's what you have to do in a documentary like this. It's like the Arnie one from a couple of months ago. I thought it was really good. Yes, it's a bit sanitised and Arnie approved, but you want the person that's about involved, I think. it's I, I, I read a lot of rock music biographies and there's a lot of terrible ones out there because they're often not authorised or they're not written by the musician and it's just second-hand information of, you know, as I say, disgruntled band members and stuff like that. So I think this is very good for the most part because it is the story of David Beckham who had this titanic footballing talent and then has lived a pretty bizarre life becoming this you know, male model and global superstar and marrying, you know, one of the world's most certainly successful musicians at the time. So he lived through a tremendous time. He became a footballing god. Then he was a footballing enemy because he famously was given a red card and the nation hated him. Then he won the nation back. Then he went off to Spain. Then he possibly had an affair. They talk a bit about that. It's sanitised, but this man has lived an incredible life that very few people ever will. So I think it gets by by just the telling of the story alone. He's not the most charismatic person I've ever come across. A few more jokes might have been good, but it is a good watch, even if you are not a football fan, just to relive that time of cool Britannia and see where he went to in his own life with his own children. And he now keeps bees. I'm giving a pretty cautious thumbs up to Beckham on Netflix. Now, that was, of course, the unmistakable sound of Mike Oldfield and Tubular Bells. And in cinematic terms, that can only mean one thing, The Exorcist. But hang on, was The Exorcist not a movie from the 70s? By golly, it was. But there is a new one out called The Exorcist Believer. Does the world need the sixth installment of The Exorcist? Joining me now is film critic and arts journalist Chris Wasser. Chris, how are you? John, I'm very well. How are you? Very well. Now, it was actually you who told me beforehand I'd lost count, but this is the sixth iteration of The Exorcist, right? It is, yeah. I think that the the last film or the last two films that we had were actually technically split into two, if that sentence makes any sense whatsoever. You had a Paul Schrader film, which the studio wasn't happy about. They went and edited and cut it under a different director. And then a year later decided, oh, we'll put out the Paul Schrader film anyway. So technically, that's the fourth and fifth Exorcist film. And then this one is the sixth. Yeah, and of course, just we, we, we don't want to get into all this, but there was, and you mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, the famously bad sequel, The Heretic, back in, I think, 1980, which was just atrocious. It was atrocious. The film's so atrocious that William Freakin, he saw an early cut of it while he was working on a different film. And he sat and watched half an hour of it and came away and described it as scurrilous. He said it was one of the worst, <laughs> one of the worst pieces of crap that he'd ever watched. And he said he thought it was as bad as seeing a traffic accident in the street. So, wow. um, yeah, I mean, look, it is a harsh assessment, but I think even John Borman himself would tell you it's a bad film. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, so listen, here we go again, right? So this is from what I gather, not that it can be a sequel to the first one, but in a way, they're very much harking back to the first one. Yeah, and 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 technically, it is a sequel to the first one because you have David Gordon Green and his pals, uh, his pals being you know the screenwriter and the one of the guys who came up with the story, Danny McBride, uh, who's also a, a, an actor himself. You have Jason Bloom, the super producer, the man of you know behind Bloomhouse. They're mm-hmm. doing what they did with the Halloween films, which you'll recall were you know hugely successful, but 
let's be honest, creatively bankrupt, where they just decided, listen, you know those Halloween sequels, 2, True to 77? <laughs> you know, they don't exist. This is a direct sequel to the to, to the original 70s picture. That is what they're doing with this Exorcist film. So okay. technically, we don't have to worry about the John Borman anymore. We don't have to worry about, you know, half of a Paul Schrader film. This is the definitive follow-up, apparently. Um, and I must say, for the... For the first half hour or so, I thought, wow, they haven't made a complete mess of this. Because to be fair, the setup, uh, you know, the, the, the setup that we see in that time, you know, it is competently handled. There is a half decent story there. And it all revolves around these two Georgia youngsters, Angela and Catherine, who disappear in the woods one day after school. They told their parents that they were going to be studying at a friend's house. But in actuality, they were going into the forest to conduct this kind of amateur seance because one of the youngsters, Angela, wanted to connect with her mom, who actually died uh, 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 during, you know, before, before she could actually give birth. There's this very effective... Uh, a prologue at the beginning where we see that you know Angela's father and her and her and her mother they were holidaying in Haiti they were actually on something of a photography expedition and then this is in 2010 so the earthquake hits and the mother dies but the the, the child is, is is saved so there's an awful lot going on there to start but anyway these two youngsters they disappear in the woods and the you know panic ensues and the authorities you know search for three days to try and find them they eventually show up in this in this farmhouse 30 miles from where they disappeared and every all is not right basically the you know the police don't really know what happened there's no signs that you know they were kidnapped or that you know any humans are responsible for this the 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 children themselves they have no memory they think that they've been gone for just a few hours they were actually gone for three days and when they're brought home by their parents they kind of begin to exhibit all kinds of strange behavior. They say that they're hearing voices. Uh, they actually start coming out with these demonic voices themselves. Uh, they start lashing out violently and kind of speaking in tongues. All signs point towards demonic possession. And luckily for us and luckily for the parents, one of the neighbors knows somebody who this happened to before. And this person okay. that it happened to before is Chris McNeil. Right. Now, so we have doubling down then, we have two girls, two young girls possessed. So then presumably do we have like the first one, an exorcist arrives and begins to do battle with the demons and the little girls? Or does it not follow that routine? Not really, no. Everyone just kind of shows up at, at, at once. I mean, look, I, I, there's an awful lot going on in, in that setup, but as I said, some of it is competently handled, and, and, and you kind of at times feel as though you're watching this effective thriller that maybe owes more to Denis Villeneuve's Prisoners than, than William Freakin's The Exorcist. Um, it's when... It, there, there's a scene in this film where somebody hands one of the parents a book by Chris McNeil, portrayed by Ellen Burstein, who returns for the sequel, and that is the scene where this film slips on the banana skin. And when when you can practically hear David Gordon Green straining himself to attach his film to the 1973 original, because up until then, it's just this very unsettling thriller. And then it just becomes this barmy cartoonish horror. And everything just happens at once. There's no real suspense. There's no real buildup. It's just all of a sudden we have these monstrous youngsters in front of us. All of a sudden we have a gang of exorcists. And you're right, there's, there's there's a sense that David Gordon Green and, and Danny McBreed and everyone involved, they might have sat down and watched the exorcist again and thought, we can't top this. We can't there's no there's no point in trying. So let's just you know, let's just make let's just have more of everything. So they have two possessed girls instead of one. They have 
I, I, I lost count actually, John. I don't know how many different exorcists we have in this, but all denominations from the area in Georgia are invited to try and exorcise these demons from these little girls. So we have a whole band of exorcists and they actually come together like some sort of weird little superhero group at one stage in the middle of a church. And then you heard the tuba bells at, at, at the top there. Famously, that was only used for a few seconds in mm. the original film. It was actually used more around the marketing. Um, and I know it launched the career of Mike Oldfield, but it's not, it's not as if that, 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 that sequence kind of came on every time something scary happened in the film. That's what we have here. So it's, it's, so they've no real clue of what they're doing. There's no real originality. It's just like, let's just take everything from the first film, double up on it, and hopefully people are scared. I wasn't. So Ellen Burstyn, right, she is obviously playing still Linda Blair's character's Reagan's mother, and she's back going, this happened to me a long time ago. I'm here to help. Yeah, Ellen Burstyn is back to uh, assist. And she says that, you know, I wasn't in the room um, for that exorcism, uh, you know, in the original film. You know, she's reminding us that she wasn't. Um, but she's kind of uh, devoted her life to learning everything about what happened to Reagan. And when she mm. wrote a book about it, you know, within this story, uh, Reagan was so annoyed with her that she stopped talking to her. So that's why Reagan's not around. But apparently, you know, uh, Chris McNeil can just drop everything and go see, you know, these kids who are possessed. Um, and that's pretty much, she's just kind of standing around talking about things and then conf- that happened in the first film and then confronting the little girls. It's just repetitive and it's and it's less effective because, you know, this is, think about all of the, the knockoffs and, and all of the copycats we've had over the last 50 years that there's no way this thing can be effective at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's quite a shame to see, you know, to, to, it's, it's quite a shame to see her in this, but I should say, John, she made sure that her fee for this was doubled from the initial offer. And then she used that entire fee to fund the scholarship program for young actors in New York. So something good mm-hmm. came out of it. Yeah, well, well, kudos for that. And so just to be clear, I know I've kind of asked you this already, right? And you see, I didn't want to say, but from the outset, the idea of doing anything that's is kind of sequel to The Exorcist, I just think is potty-brained. It's, it, it's just absurd. So I was, I was never really on board with this, despite the fact that I haven't seen it, but I trust in you implicitly. But is there no long good versus evil battle? Or is there just too many people involved in that for it to make any sense? Because one of the things people loved about The Exorcist was when it ramped up to Max Van Sido and the crew fighting the demon. But I'm getting the sense that there's a complete lack of that kind of clear good versus evil dynamic. I'd, I'd say there is, but there's just too much noise happening around it. I mean, right. it kind of got to a stage where, and I'd, I'd consider myself, you know, you know, almost that clever, John. Right? Yeah. But but like there were times when I found this film a little hard to follow. It's like, wait, who exactly are we rooting for? Who's going to be performing The Exorcist? This is not quite clear. What exactly are they doing to exercise these demons from the girls? Mm-hmm. I'm not really sure. But at one point, yes, someone does turn around and say, we are going to begin The Exorcism now. And I thought, well, that's good because I had no real idea of, of, of where this is going. But there are, you know, if you squint hard enough, you can just about make out the same way that there's a decent thriller I play in that in that opening half hour later on there's an idea there's a seed there that you know we have this widowed father who we as we learn more about you know what happens to them in haiti and the decisions that were involved in you know the mother dying and the child surviving and this sort of maybe just the seed of a crisis of fate they should have just followed that rather than having the second family rather than bringing in there's an awful lot of voodoo going around the 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 sidelines there's different denominations you know there's too many there's just too many people in the room you have a good story there you actually you've you've two things you you have a good story there for a missing persons thriller and you have a good story there for a film about an exorcism that doesn't have to have anything to do with the original exorcist 
Instead, they've just decided, let's just make an extra sequel. No, that's that's not good enough. Listen, in the because I watched a couple of clips and all, and particularly in the trailer, are, are like and maybe I don't know if it's a spoiler, but it's in the trailer. Are they trying to resurrect the face of Linda Blair? Because in the trailer, it almost looked like her. Doesn't it? Yeah, and I was yeah. a little bit confused about that because one of the kids eventually does kind of you know bear a, a striking resemblance to Reagan, but it's just. I don't know if that I don't know if that was just accidental. I don't know if 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 they thought, oh, let's just kind of you know you like use all the makeup we can to kind of make it. I don't know. I don't know what the thinking was there, but it's it's apparently it's a different demon. It's something completely different okay. altogether, right? It's, a, it, it's I I don't know is the short answer, but there are several times in this film, John, where and I hope people beside me or behind me didn't hear. I did actually go what the hell's going on? <laughs> I was yeah. whispering to myself, I didn't yeah. really know. The special effects are quite poor. And given that it's been 50 years since William Freakin, you know, just kind of, yeah. you know, created those dazzling effects with a phenomenal team on The Exorcist, how this one can look a bit cheaper. Just This one at times reminded me a little bit of Linda Blair possessed in, remember that Leslie Nielsen film, Repossessed? Yeah, the, the oh. complete... Piss take. Um, the complete piss take. Yeah, it's it's that it's it's like that, but with less self awareness. Oh dear! Oh dear! Okay, and I, I, you know, we don't have to give a spoiler or anything, but does it end with it saddling up for another one? It doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, there okay. are several things that you could take away from the from the end and think, oh yeah, okay, right, they are pointing towards a sequel here. Um, it's had there, there's a bit of light and shade. There's some things that they could follow. There's some things that they could leave alone, and, re- and I wish they would. Yeah. Um, I just can't believe that this team think that they have it in them to make a trilogy of films. The next one is going to be called The Exorcist Deceiver. That's going to be out in 2025, and then whatever happens after that, there are plans for a third one, but there's no title. There's nothing. Uh, I don't think anything is even. They haven't even started any work on it yet. Um, you, you haven't even got a good horror the first time around. You you shouldn't be making plans for a second or third one. All I can say is, and I mean this in the best possible way, John, because I mentioned William Freakin earlier watching John Borman. I'm almost glad William Freakin is not around with us anymore to watch, to watch this film because yeah. I think it would have it would have it would have broken his heart. Yeah, no, I know, and you know this better than I do. But he loved The Exorcist and was happy to talk about it till the the cows came home. Like he really cared deeply for for the life that movie had. Okay, well, what are you going to say stars wise for The Exorcist Believer? We'll go with two out of five because I mean, for a while there at the beginning, David Gordon Green almost tricked me into thinking he made a good film again. He doesn't, but if he wants to, at some stage, go off and make that you know <laughs> missing persons thriller that you know, that, that, that looks so promising, go ahead and do it. But he hasn't made a decent horror. He hasn't made a decent Exodus film. I don't think anyone can make a decent Exodus film other than William Friedkin. Yes, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Not even having seen this. But anyway, that is two stars for The Exorcist Believer. Chris Wasser, pleasure to talk to you as always. Nice one, John. Cheers. Chris Wasser there reviewing The Exorcist Believer. It sounds like two stars is quite generous. Anyway, up next, a fantastic movie which we reviewed last week, Fair Play on Netflix. I'm talking to its rightly lauded director, Chloe DeMont. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks TV and Movie Show. I'm John Fardy. Now if you were listening to the show last week, you will have heard us give a glowing review, myself and Esther McCarthy, to Fair Play, which was in cinemas last week, but lands on Netflix this week. And in case you didn't hear last week's show, when a coveted promotion at a cutthroat financial firm arises, one supportive exchanges between lovers Emily, played by Phoebe Dynavore from 
Bridgerton fame and Luke, played by Alden Enerek, begin to sour into something much more sinister. As the power dynamics irrevocably shift in the relationship, the couple must face the true price of success and the unnerving limits of ambition. This is the feature debut of writer and director Chloe DeMont. And it's a very taut relationship thriller that looks at gender dynamics, male fragility, uh, how men deal with female success. There's a lot of very full-on sex in it and sex in the movie is used in all sorts of interesting ways and there's a couple of very talkable, if that's even a word, sex scenes in the movie that I, I think are going to stir debate and discussion. It's a really good movie to which we gave four stars last week. Now, as I mentioned, it's by Chloe DeMont, who herself worked in TV, which is kind of a cutthroat business. And she had some of her own personal experience about male fragility. So I spoke to Chloe about Fair Play earlier this week. So Chloe, last week we reviewed Fair Play on on this show and we gave it four out of five stars. Thank God we did, because I didn't know I was going to be talking to you at that stage. So, you know... Oh, it's all good. But my uh, the person who was reviewing it with me, we both had the same feeling that it was reminiscent of kind of certain movies from the 90s. I was thinking of Disclosure, Fatal Attraction, maybe even a touch of Basic Instinct. What Was that something you were consciously or unconsciously channeling, do you think? Um, I... Uh... It, it, that wasn't that wasn't really on my list of films that 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 that, uh, that I was kind of um, I wouldn't say that was on the inspiration list for for making this film. Um, look, I mean, I I set out to make a thriller about power dynamics within a mm-hmm. relationship. You know, that happens to be highly sexual. So there are definitely crossovers to the erotic thriller genre. There are definitely crossovers to the '90s. You know, that '90s thriller. Um, uh, era, you know, for sure. Um, however, you know, my intention was not to stay within the confines of one particular genre. Yeah. Um, I think that our job as new filmmakers is to twist genre and manipulate it and break from it to, to serve the stories that we need to tell now. And, mm-hmm. and for me, it was always about leaning into the thriller genre to shine a light on the emotional terror that the character is experiencing, but in fact is quite normalized or she, you know, normalize it or, you know, to shine a light on the dangers of, of male inferiority and male fragility, um, to show all the ways in which women are forced to play ugly to survive. Mm. And, you know, I, I'm sure lots of people are talking to you about some of the sex scenes. And one of the things we said in last week's review as well was that the sex is all, it has a point. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it's trying to expand the narrative and show the dimensions of these characters. And without giving any spoilers, there are two amazing is the wrong word, but really thought provoking sex scenes. One at the start where, you know, something happens and mm-hmm. it's kind of joyful. And, and I'm sure lots of people have had that experience and you wonder why I've never seen it on screen before. And then at the end, there is, again, without giving spoiler, a pretty horrific scene uh, that is that is deeply unpleasant. Have have people spoken to you a lot about those two sex scenes in, in, in these types of interviews and the conversations you're having about this movie? Uh, yeah, no, yeah, definitely. I mean, they're, they're both... Uh... <laughs> they both kind of grab the audience by the throat in different ways. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but uh, yeah, I would say really my intention for, for the opening scene and the opening sex scene was uh, to set up the animalistic lust that these two, these two mm-hmm. characters have for each other. 
Um, I also wanted to, in, in terms of like the the messy nature of it, I, I, I felt like that was a way to fall for us to fall in love with the characters is, mm-hmm. is the fact that they're charmingly dysfunctional, that, that they're messy and that makes them human. You know, mm-hmm. I also and, and all to- sex is messy, you know, so. Totally, totally. And um, and then also with that, you know, to the the other element of it was to kind of also show that that this is a man who's not threatened by by a woman the way that that he reacts to 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 the messiness of it, you know, yeah. and, and because on the one hand, he isn't. But on the one hand, later on, he is. And I wanted to show that 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 oftentimes like men of certain generations, they are of both things, you know, and it, and 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 uh, and it, it, it's uh, these things are in contradiction to each other. And that's what makes them human, you know, is that mm. we never feel one thing at any given moment. You know, we as humans, uh, we, we feel lots of different things that are in opposition to each other. Mm. There is tremendous chemistry between the two of them, mm-hmm. uh, Phoebe and I were like, uh, you know, is it lucky casting? Do you practice that? Do do they just have it? Like, did they show up and were you like, God, they have it? Or did you just always suspect if I put these two people together, it will work? Um, I, you know, I had, it was a gut instinct for sure, yeah. which is why I cast them. Then once we got them in the same room, I mean, it was evident that the, that the chemistry, the chemistry was pretty instant and, and you believe them as a couple, mm. but not that they're a couple that you actually want to watch, you know? Mm. And I think yeah. that was, was exciting. There are lots of couples who maybe have chemistry, but there are couples you maybe yeah, don't want to watch. watch. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, no, I would think that, I think that chemistry is something that you either have or you don't. Um, I think you, of course, you can build the chemistry, and that—that's what we did, and that's what we worked mm-hmm. on in the rehearsal process was just flushing that out and building that up, and and uh, and I think that 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 just that just created a kind of electricity between them on screen was was the rehearsal process of them really bonding and getting to know each other. Yeah, and I don't want to yeah pry too thoroughly into your private life, but I I have read a couple of interviews with you, and you certainly gave the impression that this idea of male fragility that you mentioned and men finding it hard when women are more successful than them, that this is something you've encountered in both your work life and your personal life. Is that a fair assessment? I mean, yeah, definitely. I think that that's, you know, there's definitely, um, when I sat down to write, write the story, there was definitely, you know, it was a reckoning with, with personal experiences I had in the past. And I would say most specifically, it, it came from when my career started to take off and, and I was in relationships with men who on the one hand uh, I could feel their excitement and support, but on the other hand, I could also feel like my accomplishment was a poor reflection of their self-worth and, and me being big on some level made them feel small. And, and this was something that, that I don't think was ever, it was never spoken about because it was something mm. we were both afraid to admit that that was what was actually going on. So it just felt kind of like, uh, you know, floating in the air and, and it created tensions um, that led to passive aggressive comments, you know, and, and, and certain fights that you wouldn't necessarily know that's where it was coming from. But, but, you know, say years mm-hmm. after reflection, you say, Oh yeah, that, that's exactly the, you know, what was going on. Yeah. And like, you're not a psychologist, nor am I, but you know, as a man who's married to a reasonably successful woman and a father to boys and girls, I, mm-hmm. I'd like to think we're getting better at yes. this kind of stuff, but I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you think it is getting better. Um, <laughs> so 
<laughs> I would say yes. Yes. <laughs> it's fine yes. if you say no. <laughs> well, I would say yes and no. So okay. I would say I would say no first because we're in a post Me Too era where people are afraid to talk about certain mm -hmm. things, right? They're because they're afraid of that of how they'll be seen as a, a certain way. They're afraid to not be seen as evolved or progressive, you know, or having, you know, they're afraid that, that people might see them as, as a, or pick apart some kind of elements of the misogyny or whatever. So I feel like on the surface, everyone is saying, you know, you know, all these all things, the right that are, things, all the right things. Exactly. But under the surface, there are still certain feelings because of the way people were raised, because what was instilled in them, you know, as kids, because of uh, up until recently, what as a society we were kind of putting out there. And, and I don't think that makes, I mean, I don't think it's their fault. I don't think it's our fault, you know, for feeling these ways, you know, but I do think it, it's creating a more insidious level of uh, misogyny, you know, which, yeah. which is coming out then because anything that's pushed under the rug, anything that's pushed down and repressed comes out in, in unexpected, ugly ways, right. And yeah. unexpectedly, you know, moments. And I think that that is, that's, that's problematic. So I would say, because we're afraid to even talk, we're in this era, we're afraid to talk about anything that, that, that that's a problem. And, and, and it's going to make, you know, certain things that we want to work through a problem because we can't even acknowledge that. Um, which is part of why I made this movie to say, look, Luke is a progressive man in a progressive city, but he's still raised a certain way. And, and, um, and, uh, you know, and, and uh, it's not his fault that he was raised that way. It's not his fault for having these feelings, but also his actions are inexcusable, you know, and, and he should be held accountable, you know, for this kind mm -hmm. of behavior. And, and so yeah. it's, it's, it's raising all those questions uh, to answer the other part, why I think, yes, we are doing better is because, uh, you know, times are changing and we are raising boys and girls um, under, we're breaking free a little bit more from those traditional ideas of, of gender roles where, where I'm sure, yeah, your, your children, they see your wife, you know, working and, 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 you know, and making her own money and they see, you know, so there's like, they're going to grow up under a house of more like uh, modern, you yeah. know, ideas of gender roles. And I think that that's important for, for boys and girls to grow up yeah. under, but I think that it starts there. It starts yeah. at that age. Yeah. They barely think I have a job anyway. They say, all you do is watch movies. So, but anyway, let's not get into that now. Just finally then, is it, uh, you know, is it, I presume it's no coincidence that this was set in the world of high finance and, and hedge funds. I mean, did you see that as a particular environment where issues that the movie deals with might actually come to play as opposed to if these two people were in, I don't know, sports world or, you know, you, you chose hedge fund and high finance particularly, I'm assuming. Yeah. I mean, it was a, it was a choice. It was a personal choice because it was something that it was while it was new territory for me to explore. Cause I'd never, I've never been in that world. Um, it also felt like something I can relate to in many ways. And I feel like just because I feel like there's a lot of parallels and similarities to film and TV, just the high stakes nature of it, mm -hmm. um, having directed in television, you know, just the fact that there's a lot of money on the table and, and you have to shoot the adrenaline rush and the pressure you feel like of having to, to make your days. And if you don't, if you don't shoot those scenes, you know, the, the amount of money you lose, you know, and, and the way you're looked at, you're seen as a failure, you know, you're seen as a director who can't make their days, you know, and what that does to your psyche. And I can just like the high highs and the low lows that you experience in that world. 
I think are very similar to, to what these guys experience, you know, in, in high finance, you can make a lot of money for your firm one day and you can lose it all the next day. And so it felt like something that I could organically tap into. And what I was also trying to do is kind of say, okay, well, you know, what, what the toxicity of that kind of high stakes, high stakes work environment does to the toxicity of, you know, a relationship that's already unraveling and vice versa. And it becomes this kind of toxic bubble that you can't really escape. Indeed, you can. Well, listen, fair play is fantastic. And I think it'll yeah. generate a lot of conversation in the right in the right way. So lovely wow. to talk to you. Thanks a million. OK, thank you so much. Luke, I'm not quitting. But we both can't keep working here. It's killing us. Okay, if it bothers you this much, you can leave. Are you serious? I'm the one with something to lose. And I'm not. Cutting your losses isn't the same as giving up. This is our only way out now, Luke. There are other firms that you can try and go to. I don't to. give a shit about other firms. I want this firm. Well, maybe this firm doesn't want you. A clip there from Fair Play. And before that, you heard me talking to its director, Chloe Dumont. Uh, and that was her first feature. And it'll be fascinating to see what she does after this. Fair Play is now on Netflix. It's a great watch, a very interesting watch. And I think people are going to be talking about this one for a while to come. So uh, get in touch if you plan on watching it or you may have watched it. John underscore Fardy is my Twitter handle or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. Up next, the writer of Pure Mule, Eugene O'Brien, on the movie he wrote called Tarek, all about rowing, bringing a group of lost women back together. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and movie show. Tarek is a new Irish language movie that is released this Friday and largely takes place in the beautiful surrounds of the Dingle Peninsula. Aoife, played by Kelly Goff, returns home to Kerry from a busy and well-paid job in Dublin to help her father, Brendan the Bear, played by Lorcan Cranage, in his recovery from a heart attack. During this time, Aoife faces grief of her own mother's death that she hasn't really dealt with. Uh, and a lot has been left unsaid with her father. But in tandem with that, the film is also something of a sports movie and and a kind of unusual one in that, in that she reacquaints herself with a group of rowers uh, on an all-female team who, against the odds, take on a high-stakes Navogue rowing competition. Now, Tarek was written by Eugene O'Brien, the playwright, writer and novelist whose work includes the play Eden and, of course, one of the greatest Irish TV shows of all time, Pure Mule. Other screen work includes film comedy The Flag starring Pat Short and co-writing credits on dramas like Red Rock and the film The Food Guide to Love and of course Black 47 he was a writer on that. I'm delighted to say Eugene joins me now. How are you Eugene? How are you? How you doing? I'm good. The elevator pitch of this in a way is you know uh, woman returns to home place to possibly find solace and, and reunite with her father and yet gets involved in female rowing uh, and a large of it takes place in a boat so was this a story that was with you in your head for a long time it, it feels like it might have been something that's been gestating in your brain for years well uh, to be to be honest uh, <laughs> and I, I hope you will be I will be totally honest with you at all times uh, the, the, the yeah the, the character that kind of had long gestated in my brain was actually the father character, the bear, okay. who was this kind of unreconstructed old school male, confused about the modern world, and um, 
had been a hard drinker and uh, had been kind of a distant type of a man, not unable to feel emotion in and, and terms of, of a lot of stuff he'd gone through in his past. So he was kind of my character and I was looking to put him into something and our producer, Kleena Navukula, uh, we were talking about him and she said, I have this fantastic subject, this great world down in Kerry. She spends a lot of time in Kerry of this mm. naval rowing. She said, it could be a fantastic place to set a film. And then we kind of got the idea that Bear would be like this old trainer, like the wrestler, like Mickey Rourke and the wrestler, a guy yeah. who had to give up, you know, the rowing. He had a heart attack. He couldn't go on. Um, and then we got to thinking about the the, vic- like the, the, the fallout of his behaviour and, and, and these characters who are great characters, but it's very hard to be close to them. It's very hard to be related to them. Um, you know, they're, they're great lads to everyone outside the family home. So we'd start thinking about a daughter. And then the daughter kind of took over as the main character mm. and, the, and the one who has to go through the most kind of change or whatever, you know, who's facing the biggest obstacle. Um, and uh, so that's how it kind of came about. We did a lot of drafts. We were involved in the great Cine 4 scheme that produced on Colleen Kuhn. And the great thing with that scheme is that they let you know you have money quite early on. Uh, you get you get this great momentum. And then mm. and because of COVID, actually, we couldn't shoot. So we we had a lot of time to really craft the script, and the script changed a lot actually in the last kind of six months, even before we shot it in uh, October of two thousand twenty-one. So that and it really benefited from that. So so that's yeah. kind of the inside story. Yeah, well, I, I have it all. It's funny you say that. You know, when you know the money is there, it, it, it changes everything. Uh, it's an important thing. One of the characters is the boat, in a way. Uh, yes. The, the Navy, you know, I guess it, it's a metaphor as well. It, it, or may, maybe you can tell me, but it seems to me that, you know, the three other women who join Aoife in the boat, two of them in particular, are also going to find something in this in this boat. Absolutely. I mean, that was that was a, one of the major things we really wanted to get into was that feeling of the common goal, getting together, learning to trust other people. Aoife is not a, not a, a person who trusts people uh, mm. because she's kind of in trauma, really, uh, un, unresolved kind of stuff going on. So she doesn't trust people. She's a very high-powered job in Dublin. So, she, it's, so it's a big thing about her trusting these great women in this boat and all rowing together because Navog rowing is not really about strength it's about actually rhythm you have to be mm. in unison or you go nowhere uh, and so that was the big thing and that the other women in the boat all had something to gain out of this experience um, and yeah so it, it has a classic sports movie type of structure in that way yeah. they have to learn to get on and then they get on and then they bond uh, in a way that they never thought they would and sisters of the sea they call themselves and it's 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 that extraordinary kind of um, freedom and uh, that you get from being in the water and all that. Yeah, and you know, it, it's funny. You were telling me beforehand about you know riding in an Irish or not. We'll we'll get into that. But I've <laughs> spoken to every director of some Irish language movies in the last few years, from Ancolly and Queen to. Uh, uh, Dinan, uh, Aracht, and I always because they're all great movies, as is this one. And I, I say the same thing every time, and, and people are bored me saying it. But I unfortunately, like a lot of people, have 
leaving Third Irish, which kind of amounts to very little, which is a tragedy. But you forget these movies are in Irish in in a way, and, and the storytelling takes over. And and in in a weird kind of way, the Irish is incidental, even though it's front and center. So, I mean, you wrote this in English, is that right? Yes, I wrote this in English. I do not have any Irish. Like you, I'm a leaving sort of Irish person. I didn't particularly like Irish school. It was kind of, uh, well, I mean, we, we got hit across the head if we didn't know it uh, in, in the early 80s. <laughs> up to 82, yes. I think they had to stop hitting us. So we associated <laughs> Ireland, Irish with being backward, with being, it wasn't cool then. Like it's much cooler in the last 20 years. And there's Irish schools and it's fantastic. And children grow up and they actually speak the language to each other rather than trying to learn the Mokanilak and all that yeah. uh, fascistic approach to it. But, uh, <laughs> and poor Peg, of course, you know. But it's all of that. So we, I come from all that. So I don't really, so it's only in recent years that I've come to kind of value it in a real way because you, 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 when, when, even though you don't speak it, when you start getting into the whole translation, and I worked very closely with Lena, who, who also translated, and I worked on the story with her as well. So we would get in the room for five hours and bash around the story, and I'd go away, write, write a treatment and come back and go, go, go back and forth. So you get to know the language a bit more because it's your business to know it as to you know how it's being translated and everything. So it was kind of fascinating. And I think these films are have been successful as well because of a great sense of place and of authenticity mm-hmm. to a place. And I think that will be our strength as filmmakers uh, rather than chasing the genre thing all the yeah. time with budgets yeah. that can't quite support that. I think if we are, you know, and not, but not everything has to be uh, anything, you know, there's a mixture of things. But I think our strong point, strong suit, which has been proved with the success of these films is, is absolute sense of place and authenticity and, and a real Ireland where, yeah. you know, perhaps other versions of Ireland, uh, I won't mention any films, you know, films with donkeys in them. Anyway, tend to have a heightened <laughs> version of Ireland, which is great, and it's it's its own kind of more heightened black comedy kind of thing, which which the English especially seem to love. But I do think it's refreshing just to have actual, you know, an authentic version of the country we live on on the big screen. You talk about location. I mean, this is Dingle. This is the Wild Atlantic Way. It just looks absolutely beautiful. And, and, you know, you talk about movies with donkeys and maybe those movies attract people to the West Coast or whatever. But this movie would attract people to the Southwest Coast because it just looks so gorgeous. I presume, I, I, I know shooting a movie is different than actually being on holiday, but I presume it's it's just joyful to be setting and shooting a movie in such a gorgeous place as, as that part of the world. Yes, indeed. It, it, it's absolutely joyful uh, if the sun comes out and the weather's on your side. But uh, <laughs> Yes, of course. Uh, uh, Declan Rex, who, who directs a film who I've worked with a lot, and uh, Paddy Jordan, who shot it. Uh, yeah, it was kind of novenas and Child of Prague's every every morning. <laughs> to uh, The locals would say, if the morning started out shit weather, you'll be grand. If the morning started out well, you, you, it wasn't good news that, that the rain would okay. be coming in, you know. So you weren't ever to get too downhearted if it looked terrible the first thing in the morning. So, no, but the weather actually was quite good. We shot it in, in September late early October into November, um, which we had to for budgetary reasons and accommodation and all that. Yeah. Uh, we were and we were out in, we were in Ballyfetterer, all the unit was all in, in Ballyfetterer, edge of the world, you know. Yeah. And it was an astonishing place to be. But the water, uh, you know, there's, it, there's there's the challenges of shooting on water, especially in sure. those boats. 
so it, it really was a trial and error, and and they did an extraordinary job with that because they, I think the both the both sequences are are really good, you know. And actually, yeah, it's a are. sports movie; it needs that. Yeah. You know what I mean? It has yeah. to have that. Listen, I was talking to John Carney last week, and I just happened to mention to him that you know he returns to Dublin all the time when he's writing, whether whether he wants to or not, you know? And I was saying to you before we came on air how I saw Eden in the Abbey all those years ago. And then, of course, you followed it up with Pure Mule. There was a there was a, another Pure Mule, The Lost Weekend. You wrote a novel last year where the titular character, Scobie, uh, returns again. That that Midland setting and, and, and that place of, of pure mule and all, you, you, you seem to, and I know this movie has nothing to do with the Midlands, but it's a place you constantly return to. Is that, I, I presume that's something you're very aware of. You don't need guys like me pointing it out to you. Uh, yeah. And I'm very, I'm very aware of it. And I, I seem to like, I, I hadn't really written anything about the Midlands for a while. Uh, and I've returned to it in recent years. Uh, and I really seem to find my true voice there, whatever it is. I wrote a play called mm. Heaven, which yeah, which we won a Fringe First at Edinburgh recently, and 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 we're in New York, and so it's it's got done very well. And that's set in the Midlands as well. And we have a new new film we're we're kind of developing, which is very much set in the Midlands. So it seems to be a place I go back to, and and um, we'll continue to go back to. You know, and I've I've a new play opening next week at the Dumb Theatre Festival, which is also set in the Midlands. Uh, a, a very unlikely story, but an ordinary dairy man who happens to meet David Bowie. So wow. <laughs> it's called Falling to Earth, folks. Civic Theatre. Go see it. Um, so, <laughs> no, no, um, you're promoting Tarek. They'll give out to me. Yeah, no, but joking. Tarek as well. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no, obviously. Uh, so, but no, but, but just that Midlands thing, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's where I just find uh, I can really explore the things. And the more you know, authentic and kind of um, smaller you get, the more universal you can be about the bigger things in life, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. And I asked John Carney, does he still live in Dublin? I presume, I don't know why I'm presuming this, but do you still live in the Midlands? It, no, I, I, I've been in Dublin. I, I well, did live in Dublin for, for 35 years or something. I mean, I, Eden Jerry, mm-hmm. where I'm from, is very near Dublin, so you're back and forth. Yeah. I have loads of family sure. there and my parents and my brothers and sisters. So I go up and down, but I've actually recently moved up to Sligo. So I'm actually talking to you from Ennis Grown in Sligo. And myself and my partner moved up here. Uh, she's okay. from County Sligo. So it's a whole new world up here. Um, and um, so, yeah, but I go to the Midlands a lot, you know. Yeah. Listen, here's a curveball for you that's going to end the interview. Regular listeners to this show know that I claim to be Ireland's biggest Billy Joel fan. And one of the funniest lines that I heard in a play was, and I want to make sure I have this right, but does a character in Savoy say she was out in the car giving him a Billy Joel? Yes. <laughs> that Excellent. is true. So, he, so I, di- I didn't dream that up. You didn't dream it. God, that's, I, I mean, I completely forgot that until you just said, yeah, yes, a BBJ being the, you know. Okay, yeah. yes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, great. Well, is that the weirdest <laughs> question to end an interview you've ever been asked? You win it. <laughs> that's it. You get the prize. Well, <laughs> yeah, listen. Brilliant. T- Tarek is in cinemas from the 6th of October. I've been talking to its writer, Eugene O'Brien. Eugene, thanks a million. Thank you very much, John. Thank you. Eugene O'Brien there, the writer of the movie Tarek, talking to me there about Billy Joel.
Mm-hmm. And his movie, Tarek, which he wrote, which is in cinemas from this Friday, the 6th of the sixth of October. I forgot what month it was there. I do that regularly. Time is not my friend. Who Who is a friend of time? That is it for this week. Thank you for listening. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. Enjoy the remainder of your weekend and have a safe week ahead.